black holes don't actually ring. It's more like they thud. This episode is sponsored by Car2DB. Car2DB is an open, powerful, and intuitive platform for discovering and predicting the key facts underlying the massive location data in our world. With Car2DB, you can design and analyze beautiful and insightful maps. Check out incredible location intelligence projects and get started for free at car2db.com gallery. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Hey Moritz, what's up? Hey Enrico, not much, how about you? Not much, not much. Yeah. <laughs> Semester ending, it's great. A busy professor, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As it yeah, should yeah. be. Yeah. As it should I'm super be. excited for this episode. It's, it's a very yeah, special yeah, episode yeah, yeah. for us. <laughs> Me too, I'm so excited. A baby, first an announcement. Um, oh yeah. For all of you on Android... Um, we are now in Google Play, at least in the United States, soon also elsewhere. So you can search mm -hmm. us there, add us there. And we also have a Slack channel. And it's kind of nice. So uh, right now we're like 20 people there and they drop us ideas and feedback. And you can also be in touch with other listeners. Yeah, it's a direct channel Yeah, to us <laughs> and from us to you. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of cool for us to know what, what everybody thinks and what you're up to. Yeah. And I just want to thank, uh, we realized that there are a lot of people who've been um, reviewing the show on iTunes. And as you may know, that's very important for the show. So if you didn't write a review so far, uh, please do it. That's that's very helpful. Very, very helpful. <laughs> Thanks a lot for all those of you who, who did it. Thanks. That's, yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, and it helps a lot really with the ratings and, and making oh, it yeah. popular. So, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of cool. So we are excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have a sonification episode. So we're going to talk about using sound to represent data. Yeah. So after four years of being mocked for doing a, a, a audio podcast on data visualization, like, <laughs> you know, everybody makes fun of us for that. We finally turn it around now. Yeah, so everyone, warm up your ears. <laughs> Be ready. Yeah. And we have a very special guest for this episode. We have Scott Hughes directly from MIT. He's a professor of physics and he's going to talk about LIGO and gravitational waves and how they use the sonification to better understand what's going on in, in space. <laughs> so welcome on the show, Scott. Thanks a lot for coming. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, a lot of fun to be here, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. <laughs> so, Scott, can you briefly give an introduction about uh, yourself, uh, who you are, what you do, and then we want to move directly to the background information about uh, LIGO and gravitational waves. Sure. So uh, I'm a professor at MIT. I've been on the faculty here for 13 years now. Um, you know, you can see how much gray hair I have. It's been a uh, been an interesting 13 years. Um, and uh, my research is in uh, astrophysics. I study systems of very massive, dense bodies, very strongly gravitating bodies, which uh, we model using Einstein's theory of general relativity. And a lot of what I do connects to how we can understand some of these most fascinating objects in our universe 
using observations, uh, using the new technology of gravitational waves. So since I started my PhD, in fact, if we had done this yesterday, yesterday was the 18th anniversary of my defense of my PhD. Oh, wow. So oh, I have been, been thinking about <laughs> gravitational waves and measuring them. And in fact, even thinking about them using the language of sonification now for uh, <laughs> over two decades. And so this has been a very exciting year for me, um, I mean, for many of us in our community, but just, I'm going to be a little bit selfish. It's been an exciting year for me <laughs> because something that I have been working toward for 23 years has finally come into fruition. And so uh, I hope I can share a little bit of why this is so exciting and what it means to uh, some of us and what we expect will continue to mean as we move into the future um, in our, the next discussion that we have here. So mm -hmm. th that's a that's a fantastic opportunity for us. Can you can you give us like a micro lecture <laughs> on uh, on uh, um, gravitational waves and LIGO directly from an MIT professor? That's that's amazing. <laughs> uh, 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 a micro lecture is uh, I'm a professor. You know, confining myself to a micro <laughs> lecture is the, is the challenging part. That's right. I will try to keep it at least to a mini lecture here. So. <clears throat> LIGO stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Um, that's a mouthful. What it basically is, is an antenna that picks up very weak oscillations and gravitational forces that are generated by distant objects. And so what motivates a lot of this is that there are many objects in our universe that consist of very dense masses that are, uh, have very strong gravitational fields. Some of them are in orbits around one another such that they swirl around very, very rapidly. And uh, they give rise to very violent, dynamically varying gravitational fields. When that occurs, what Einstein's theory of general relativity taught us is that little pieces of that gravitational field leak away as radiation. There's an analogy we can use here. If you have two charges that are oscillating around one another, the electric and magnetic fields of those charges, pieces of that leak away, that produces light. Okay, So radiation from ordinary electric charges is what we use to see everything with. Now, in the same way, when you have two uh, masses whirling around one another very rapidly, a piece of the gravitational field radiates away. And it's possible, in principle, for various people to build instruments that can measure that in the same way that you can measure electric and magnetic fields with an antenna. An antenna is basically just a piece of metal that has uh, uh, charges in it that can oscillate around and generate a current. Well, gravity couples to masses. So you make an antenna out of very distantly separated masses. And when gravity comes along, it'll shake those masses, build that thing carefully enough, and it gives you a tool to measure that. It's very difficult. Uh, gravity is the weakest of all the fundamental forces. You know, my, my demo for this is I always tell everyone, so the last time I did a demo for this, I was giving a talk in a bar, and I said to everyone, lift your beer over your head. And everyone did that, and they, of course, took a drink. And I said, you just demonstrated that gravity is weak. And, you know, everyone kind of looked at me like, what? And I was like, let's think about what just happened there. You had electric, uh, electrochemical reactions in the, you know, half a kilogram or so of muscle tissue in your arm lifted <laughs> that beer above your head. In doing so, that half a kilogram of muscle tissue overcame the roughly five billion trillion tons of attraction of gravity from the entire planet Earth. Congratulations. You are stronger <laughs> than the Earth when you did that. Um, and the point to be made is that it's not 
very difficult to overcome gravity. And so if you're trying to measure a very weak gravitational disturbance, it's hard. And yeah. so LIGO yeah. has been a program to measure not just you know forces from the Earth, but from objects that are billions of light years away. Um, and so it's been a very, very long journey. The LIGO detectors were first made uh, around, they first started running around 2000. And it's just been a long journey of improving, finding sources of noise, getting rid of them and making it more and more sensitive. Um, and it's not just an American project. A huge piece of this project is actually in Germany. There's uh, an institute, institutes in Hanover and Potsdam that participate in this. There's even a small scale interferometer uh, near Hanover, um, yeah, it's near Hanover, Germany that uh, is involved in this. There's a detector in Pisa, Italy that is uh, not quite as sensitive as, as LIGO, but is getting there and is expected to be contributing uh, to this these measurements in a couple of months. Um, and there's plans for ones that will run in a few other places around the world as well, notably in Japan and in India. So this is turning into, what switching over to my interest in this, this is a program to measure the gravitational interactions of objects that are often dark and cannot be seen via the normal mechanism. And so it allows us to perceive things going on in the universe in a unique way. And uh, we are just begun, essentially, the journey of doing this on a regular basis. And uh, as I like to say, we have gone from gravitational wave detection to gravitational wave observation. And that is where we hope to be going over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And for many years of your research, it was not even clear if they can be detected, right? So you've been into this now for 20 years. And I've been into this yeah. for 20 years. You know, we had, there, there was a lot of indirect evidence that certainly made us very confident that it existed. But the issue was we didn't know how common are the sources that are going to be strong enough that they could actually be measured. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of these things where, so there's a particular source, which I'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast. The one that was actually measured is the, the merger of two black holes with one another. Um, no one really knew how often two black holes would merge with one another. And so if you took a look at the uh, estimates that astrophysicists had calculated for how often something like LIGO would measure that, the estimates ranged from you know somewhere between one per month to one per 10,000 years. <laughs> and so <laughs> you know, when you have that range of uncertainty, it's, just, it's, it's a bit of a dangerous game. But it's one of those things where it's, it's high risk, high reward. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, there are other things that were considered to be a little bit uh, more secure. And so that's one reason that we got funding and that this uh, detectors were built. Uh, but it was a little bit of a surprise that this one thing that was considered particularly exciting, but particularly uncertain, was the first thing that was measured. Mm -hmm. and, and last year you got lucky and, and the first uh, gravitational wave was caught in the wild, right? <laughs> it was stunningly lucky. Um, <laughs> It actually was picked up about, I can't remember if it's one or two days before the run was officially supposed to begin. They were actually in sort of a mode where they were, I mean, they were, they were of course on, they were running, everything was working perfectly, yeah. but they were officially, they were, you know, they could have sort of gone in and shut things down because they were doing various engineering tests. But the tests were going so well that they more or less just said, eh, let's just let it run and, you know, see if anything comes up. <laughs> wow. And boy, yeah. something came up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, so for the first time there, there was this data collected, and of course uh, now and now we we come to the topic, right? And uh, yes. of course you can plot it in a traditional line chart as as you would expect from something with waves and physics. You know, everybody has a certain idea, um, right? But you chose a very special uh, approach to representing that data, right? That's right. So you know. The truth is, when you look at a lot of gravitational waves, 
if you apply your algorithmics to them and you do a lot of fancy analysis, you can certainly tell that there's there are big differences between different sources and there's lots of information that's in there. But if you just want to show a plot on a screen, guess what? They all wiggle. Okay, they are all <laughs> at sort of leading order a sine wave with a bunch of additional stuff happening. Yeah. Um, and there's only so many times you can look at a sine wave and go, "Oh, look at that! It wiggles up and down." <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's many reasons why we were thinking it might be fun to try to do something else with this. Um, one issue is that, as I mentioned, gravity is a weak force, and for the for the purposes of doing the LIGO measurements, that means you are always fighting noise. And so for years, many of us were thinking, what is the best way to pull these signals out of the noise? And we sort of knew that we could model these things pretty well, and we could use the fact that there was uh, the, 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 time, the temporal behavior of these things was coherent, the noise would be incoherent, we could use all these kinds of things. But we were playing around with lots of different algorithms and, and ideas to sort of pull it out. And it was actually in conversation, uh, this was over 20 years ago, it was in conversation with a graduate student who works in neuroscience, um, where we sort of described this problem. We were asking whether the idea of using computational neural networks would be useful mm -hmm. for helping to pull mm -hmm. signals like this mm -hmm. out of the noise. Mm -hmm. And this neuroscience graduate student listened to our, our discussion of what our problem was. He sort of leaned back and said, you know... The human ear is a pretty decent <laughs> spectral analyzer, and it's already hooked up to a decent neural network. So oh, have you guys tried just listening to your data? And we kind of looked at each other and went, huh, let's give this a whirl. <laughs> and so that's sort of how, son at least from my perspective, that is how sonification of gravitational waves was born. Just an offhand comment from a neuroscience graduate student. I wish I knew who that student was. It was uh, <laughs> I'd love to call him up and tell him that uh, he hath wrought great things. <laughs> Maybe he's listening. If you're listening, get in touch with Scott. If you're listening, <laughs> get in touch. <laughs> so how does this work in practice? So you, you have data that is describing the signal, right? So the first time you right. did it, how, how did you do it, right? How do you turn the signal into, into an audio file? So um, we should back up a little bit. So the first detection was made, you know, as I said, just months ago. But I've been working in this field since 1993. So for the longest time, doing sonifications was a game of theory. You know, I, um, I am someone who studies Einstein's theory of general relativity. My expertise is in computing the gravitational waves that arise from certain sources. And so what I would do is I'd do a computational simulation. I would model a particular source. I would think about the way the gravitational waves depend on a bunch of parameters. And at the end of this, I get one of these traces on my screen, which is what the waveform looks like as it wiggles as a function of time. And so I was just, you know, staring at that and said, okay, well, I've got my waveform as a function of time. Let's just sample this and convert it into a dot .wave file, see what we get. Um, and if you want to sort of get an example of what that looks like, you know, I've given you a couple of uh, examples here. If you play the sound labeled simulated GW1, that's an example of what comes out of this. So what you are hearing there is the fact that as these two objects are orbiting one another, at any given moment, they're sort of spinning around and you basically get just a simple tone that corresponds to the orbital frequency of these two bodies orbiting each other. But gravitational waves change the properties of the orbit. And so as these things uh, are, are, are orbiting one another, gravitational waves cause them to move slightly closer together. When they get slightly closer together, 
they start to orbit faster. This has two effects. It makes the frequency higher, and it makes the amplitude, the, the, no, the level of the sound higher. And so you get this, what we call the chirp, associate these two things continually going faster and louder and faster and louder, mm -hmm. until eventually the two bodies actually collide with one another. Um, and there's sort of a little bloop there at the end uh, <laughs> that very quickly damps out, and it just kind of goes bloop, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I the very first time I, I did one of those, I was actually running it uh, on a, a laptop I had in the apartment I was living in. I was a, a student at Caltech at the time. Um, and, you know, I just got this thing going and the speakers in my laptop weren't very good. So I thought, <laughs> well, what the heck, I'll just hook it into the stereo system. So I ran a line <laughs> and I put it into the stereo system in uh, the living room of the apartment I was renting. It was a lot louder than I expected it to be. <laughs> so this is why I discovered that if you're going to do something like that, warn the people you are living with uh, because it was not appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> at so least not did you have time. the police at the door that night? <laughs> almost, almost. <laughs> okay. uh, cool. Um, but then as people began, it, you know, it, was, it was realized soon after that they're not just good for uh, understanding theoretical signals, but people began playing, you know, there was a, a prototype interferometer that had been built at Caltech, and people started listening to the data stream from that. Um, and in the course of doing so, it was actually turned out to be useful for diagnosing certain kinds of noise that would actually occasionally enter and mess up the measurements. Um, there was one very periodic click that they kept hearing in one of the data streams when they first did this. And that turned out to trace back to a bug um, in the software that was used to digitize uh, the data stream that was coming out of this thing. It turned mm -hmm. out they were sort of periodically dropping every time there was sort of a particular uh, data, um, a particular frame that was a certain length when they would sort of digitize it, they were losing a little bit of data at the end of it. And so they're hearing this periodic click that was associated with the end of the little uh, data data packets. Um, so, you know, it, it it was good for both theory and experiment, it turned out. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And can we hear more uh, of the simulations, like yeah. different types of events that could happen? So is, we get a sense of the what's possible there. Yeah. Let's play. Um, let's see. So I'm going to play. Let's play three simulated ones. And then let's listen to one of the ones that actually comes from what the universe has for us. So yes. you've already played simulated GW1. If you want to play that one again, mm -hmm. uh, just to remind us what that sounds like. So simulated GW1, that is the chirp of two bodies that are just basically spheres. And what I actually did to create that one was I modeled what happens when you have two black holes orbiting each other. And uh, the black holes are, as I described, they're orbiting, they're losing energy due to gravitational waves, and they move closer. As they move closer, they go faster, and it gets a little bit louder, and you get this chirping process. Now, jump ahead a little bit in this file I provided for you guys to the sound labeled modulated. Mm -hmm. I'll play it. Okay. Okay, that's one of my favorites. So that is almost an identical system. But what's different here is that the two black holes that are in this system are very rapidly spinning. Now here you get to something that's kind of a fascinating bit of gravitational physics. So I'm going to only use one equation in this podcast, but it's one I think I can get away with. E equals mc squared. Okay, Einstein taught us that all forms of energy are equivalent to energy and matter are equivalent to one another. When you combine that with gravity, what that means is that all forms of energy 
experience gravity in the same way that ordinary matter does. And so what this means is things like, for instance, if I, uh, if I shoot a laser beam from the surface of the Earth, that laser beam loses energy as it propagates out of the Earth's gravitational field uh, because the light in the laser beam is attracted to the gravitational field of the Earth. Now, for that sound that I just played you, the two black holes that went into that simulation are spinning, and there's energy associated with the spin of those black holes. And what that does is it changes the gravitational interaction between the two of them in such a way that when we look at those orbits, they don't just smoothly orbit one another, but they actually sort of sometimes go a little bit faster, a little bit slower, as there's kind of a... It, it's a little hard to get this... Uh, 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 the detail is exactly right, but you can sort of think of what's happening is that there's kind of an exchange in energy between the motion of the bodies as they orbit one another and the way that they are spinning. And that leads to these things as they orbit one another, periodically modulating in this uh, additional way. Now, from my standpoint, um, what's exciting about this is it really demonstrates the way in which if you do those two sounds side by side, they sound nothing alike, right? Mm -hmm. They have a very different signature associated with one another. That is an example of how, when you start measuring different kinds of signals, the information that is picked up by an antenna like LIGO teaches us information about the systems that uh, produce them. So there's an enormous amount of astrophysical information in uh, the spins of two black holes. Okay, that tells us a lot about the stars that originally formed them, the process by which they grew, and the binary that, that and the, by which they formed into a binary. And so as an, an astrophysicist, an astronomer, that's the kind of information I want to get at, because comparing those two, hearing whether I have that modulation and whether from that modulation I can understand how rapidly these black holes were spinning, how the spins are related to one another, whether they're sort of parallel or they're kicked over in some weird way. There's an enormous amount of information there. And the sound really conveys the way in which that information is embedded in the waveform. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's play one other uh, one other one that is a simulated one. So yes. jump back a little bit to simulated GW2. Okay. That was it. So that one, all you hear is sort of, it's, if you, that one's so short, you can do it again if you like. It's just a little pop. So what's up with that? Well, that is a system that is very massive. And so one of the things that's neat about uh, gravitational wave sources is that the frequency of the waves that comes out of these guys is inversely proportional to their masses. Small guys tend to radiate at high frequencies. Large ah. guys tend to radiate at low frequencies. Mm -hmm. And so when I have really massive ones, what that means is that the only bits that are actually audible to the detector are the very, you know, the ones that are as high as possible for that binary mm -hmm. uh, are only the very last couple of cycles from this thing. And so what you are hearing here is actually an incredibly violent dynamical ah. process of two black holes. So it's a sub-base, actually, and you just hear the end uh, Exactly, part. Ah. exactly. You're just hearing the end part. You're actually hearing there two black holes smashing together, yeah. space-time getting very dynamically roiled up and then quickly settling down. Ah. These are actually called... So this is an example of where uh, auto sonification helped us to understand things. That process had been in the, the general relativity and astrophysics literature since the early 70s. We sort of understood that it existed. We knew how to calculate it. And mathematically, it looks very similar to um, the process by which sound is generated when you ring a bell. And so they've been called, 
that, that, those are often called the ringing modes of a black hole. You're hearing the ringing of a black hole. But when we actually turn this into a sound and listen to it, we realize that this is a really terrible bell. You know, you normally, when you'd ring a bell, it sort of, you know, goes ding, and it lasts for a long, long time. This thing just kind of instantly just kind of goes, and then it's over. And so a colleague of mine, you know, he heard that, and he says, you know, Black holes don't actually ring. It's more like they thud. And so we sort of tongue-in-cheek now call it the thudding modes of black holes. And uh, it makes a lot more sense when you, when you listen to these things and you uh, hear that thing actually happening there. Yeah. So that one is particularly interesting to me because if you play the, the first sound that I've labeled the real deal. Yeah. I'll play it again. Play it again. So there it was. That was the actual thump of two black holes slamming together as LIGO recorded it on September 14th, 2015. Wow. Notice it's, it's, Pretty similar to the the simulated GW two. Yeah, it sounds very similar. Yeah, it is very similar, and that's because essentially they, you know, the the one that we simulated in simul in the that second GW simulation, it's very much like what LIGO actually recorded, um, because LIGO caught the merger of two rather high mass black holes. Those are it's one black hole that is thirty six times the mass of the sun, another one that is twenty nine times the mass of the sun, and we are catching the final moments of those guys actually slamming together. If I can just do one thing that's a little bit, uh, it, it's fun to occasionally go into some superlatives here. So in that little bloop that you guys just heard there, you know, it's worth mentioning that what you're hearing is sort of the, the LIGO antennas, the little masses in that antenna, they were shaken uh, by the gravity of these two merging black holes a tiny, tiny amount. Each mirror in the detector that are the masses that are actually shaken by those gravitational waves, they moved less than the radius of a proton, actually less than about a thousandth of the radius of a proton. <laughs> However, the amount of energy, the amount of energy that was in that, if that had been light rather than gravitational waves. Uh -huh. So uh, for a talk that I'm working on right now, suppose you took all of the light in the Milky Way, okay, the entire Milky Way galaxy, which contains something like 200 billion stars, take all of that light, multiply it by 175 billion. The amount of energy that that 175 billion Milky Ways puts out for about 0.2 seconds was equivalent to the energy that was released in that little bloop. <laughs> but because it's in the form of gravity rather than light, we can barely yeah. perceive it. But if it had been light, you know, I, I've done the calculation. It would have lit up the night sky for a moment. Wow. 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 So, Scott, I have, I have one question. So, what is the time scale of this event? So, the, that little blip, how, how long is it in reality? That is what it is in reality. Oh, so that that's is. actually one oh, of the things. Okay. That is actually it. There is no modification that's been done to these. Oh, so, okay. that. So if you play the sound labeled, the one that uh, Morris just plays for us, the, you know, which I had labeled the real deal, it actually was in the band of the detectors for about 0.2 seconds. In those 0.2 seconds, so what, what we've reconstructed using the kind of modeling that people like I do, is that what's going on there is that this roughly 60 solar masses worth of black hole, they orbit around each other about eight times. Okay, They were moving at half the speed of light before they slammed into one another. But that is, there is no sort of artificial shifting of frequencies or stretching of time that was done here. That is being played exactly as the detectors picked it up. That's one thing that's kind of amazing is that, that that's another reason why sonification yeah, works so well for this is that yeah. the, the actual band produced, the actual gravitational waves produced by signals that LIGO is sensitive to 
with no modification, they are in the band that the human ear is sensitive to. They range mm-hmm. from roughly a couple, you know, 10 or 20 hertz up to about a thousand hertz. Yeah. And, you know, that's basically what the human ear can hear. I think that's amazing. It's, uh, you know, it's visualization actually without even numbers. It's not just without visuals, but right. actually without numbers, because you just take that physical process, transform it in some funny way. It's like a, you know, a, a clock made just with the shadow of the sun. You know, you don't need any algebra yeah. or anything. It's uh, That's right. Yeah, I think it's so cool. That's right. I mean, yeah. and this is, you know, you, you, you need a little bit of math. You need the algebra to do sort of the detailed reconstruction that comes out of this. But again, yeah, if you sure. go back yeah, to yeah. those two, if you'd go back to those two simulations I played for you, yeah. it becomes starkly obvious that different systems sound different. And that sort of makes it clear. This is why I almost, I like to think of gravitational wave science as a, almost a kind of linguistics. Every source has sort of a different voice and it's got a different vocabulary. And a lot of what I do as a theorist is try to understand what the vocabulary is like. Those two sounds I played for you earlier sort of tell me the way in which uh, the, the spin of black holes has a unique vocabulary that changes the sound of the waves that something like LIGO picks up. Uh, and there's other effects as well. So the fact that I just get like this little pop uh, at the for these very massive ones, you know, the fact that I just get this little pop and I don't get this chirping lead up, that immediately tells me something about how massive these guys are. Um, to give another one, so I, I'll describe the astrophysics for this one a little bit later, but if you jump ahead, um, there's a sound here that I labeled Emery Jagged. Uh, hang on a second, my apologies. Le- the one that's labeled EMRI Clicky. So play the one that's labeled Clicky. You'll hear why I enabled that in just a moment. And is is yeah, it's good. It reminds me when I used to play with synthesizers. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. There's a little bit of that. So let me just describe to you what so this is another example of one of the ways in which the astrophysics of the source sort of contributes something to the to the vocabulary of the gravitational wave. So all the other sounds that I played for you, they consisted of two objects that are orbiting one another, and the orbits were circular. Now, for many of the sources uh, that we hope to measure with, our, with, uh, with these detectors, that's what we expect, and there, there's good reasons for that. Uh, but there's other sources, in particular things that we're thinking about for a detector that uh, we hope to fly in space in a decade or two, where we expect them to be not circular. They'll be very stretched out elliptical orbits, kind of like the orbit of a comet around our sun. That has a huge impact on what the gravitational waves sound like. The sound that you just played there, the one which was called clicky, that corresponds to an orbit that starts out hugely eccentric. And what happens is when you study the orbit of something like a comet going around the sun, it moves very slowly from most of the orbit until it gets close to the sun. And then it kind of whips around really quickly and it comes back Mm -hmm. down. Now, translate that to what that means for the gravitational waves. It basically means the gravitational wave is quiet, 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 quiet. And then when it whips around really quickly, loud, quiet, 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 loud, quiet, quiet, quiet. And so what we hear when we turn that into a gravitational wave sound is a click every time it passes close to every time the one body passes close to the other one. Um, and, you know, you sort of heard those clicks get close together, and eventually it actually kind of transitioned to a, uh, to a continuum. 
That's because when we model these things properly using Einstein's theory of general relativity, we find that the eccentricity gets smaller and the orbit gradually turns, it goes from being stretched out and sort of eccentric to circular. And you were actually hearing in this the physical process of the orbit changing from sort of thing that looks like Halley's Comet to something that's much more circular and like an orbit of a planet around our sun. <laughs> Should we hear it again now that we know how to interpret yeah, sure. it? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so let's do it again with that interpretation. Uh, Seatbelts on. Yeah, nice, no. <laughs> the clicks merging into one sound at some point. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that's the process of this thing going from being very stretched out and eccentric, changing over to something that's much more circular. Mm -hmm. So you know, these are all these sounds I just provided to you. You know, they're they're essentially just examples of the vocabulary of gravitational waves. And in my research, a lot of what I do is thinking about. You know, the way in which understanding that the uh, understanding how the astrophysics that interests someone like me or someone who's interested in, say, the process by which black holes form in our universe, how does that imprint itself on the gravitational waves? How does that leave sort of a, a sonic imprint on these things? And then how can we use these unique sonic imprints on these things to guide us to pull these signals out of the data and then learn from events like the one that LIGO measured um, what nature has actually produced for us? So this is the right time to take a little break and talk about our sponsor, Car2DB. Car2DB is a web-based application that allows you to load location data, displayed using a lot of different geographical mapping methods, and then generate new insights by using the easy-to-use editor, which is the starting point for analysis and design within Car2DB. And speaking of insights, I want to talk about Deep Insights, one of Car2DB's new products. So what is Deep Insights? Deep Insights is a product that allows you to explore massive geolocated datasets interactively by using dynamic filtering and drill down mechanisms. What does it mean? Well, this means that you can zoom in and out in real time with datasets with millions or even billions of items interactively, and you can also take one or more columns in your dataset, map them to interactive widgets, and then use these widgets again interactively to filter out data according to selections that you desire. And as you can imagine, this is a very powerful method to discover outliers, find unseen correlations, and more in general, uncover patterns of many different type. So if you want to know more about Deep Insights, you can go to cartodb.com slash deep minus insights. And now back to the show. So let me ask you something. I want to make sure I, I got it right. So in a way, what you are doing is that in the lab, you are simulating certain events. Yes. You listen to them and you're basically, as you said, building a vocabulary through your simulations, right? That's right. And, and then you're using this vocabulary to detect, once again, with your ears, the, the real event, which should sound the same, the same way 
um, yeah, the same way your simulations sound, right? Is that correct? That is basically correct. And there's a, there's a, there's a question there, which I'm not sure if it's in your mind, but you might be sort of dancing around. What if our simulations were wrong? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, right? that, that was my next okay. question. And yeah. so, so with the event that LIGO detected um, on September 14th, we got hugely lucky there because that ended up being so strong that it stood up above the noise without needing to use our sophisticated modeling to pull it out. Using that sophisticated modeling afterwards helped us to understand it, but we were able to detect it in the absence of that kind of modeling. Um, and uh, the fact that we saw one essentially instantly. So LIGO, it, it's worth emphasizing that LIGO's uh, publication, their, their discovery, is only based on an analysis of 16 days of data that they took. There's actually another roughly 30 days of data that they've analyzed or I should say they are analyzing, and it's expected that there'll be some papers reporting on what they've learned from that data coming out very, very soon. So there could be additional events in there that are perhaps maybe a little bit more difficult to, to find, or there's things that they want to really nail down before they discuss. Um, but, you know, to get, to get to your question, you know, there's a real concern. What if we have mismodeled these things? And, you know, that is, uh, that is a real challenge. And one of the things that people are thinking about is, can we go out and find these things using something that doesn't build as much modeling into this. And the truth is, it's hard because sometimes these signals are going to be, they're, they're buried in a fair amount of noise. And you know, trying to pull it out without knowing exactly what to listen for is, uh, is a difficult thing. One way in which you know, nature really smiled on us with this event is that it was, because it was so strong and you didn't need to do any sophisticated modeling to pull it out, it swept away a lot of doubt. And then when we go and we apply the sophisticated modeling to it, it turns out that everything that our general relativity-based models predicted, it passed with flying colors. You know, we like to mm -hmm. sort of say, you know, everyone knows, uh, you know, Einstein is kind of a, a byword for genius, right? Everyone knows he is, you know, an, an amazingly, he was an amazingly brilliant person who pushed the boundaries of science in a huge way. But in some ways, you have to almost know his theories to appreciate just how bloody smart he was. Because what this <laughs> discovery did was it sort of made us realize, you know, we, it, with this discovery, there are certain, certain ways of, of testing the theory of gravity that got advanced by orders of magnitude, factors of 100,000 in certain parameters that tell us about how strong gravity is and how violently dynamical things are changing. And, you know, there's no reason why, given the, the extent to which gravity had been tested prior to September 14th, we would expect it to hold and work perfectly after September 14th, and yet it did. So as near as we can tell, Einstein gives us the full story. And as long as that remains true, it gives us a toolkit by which we are going to build this vocabulary and use it to listen to these sources and interpret them and try to learn what is going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's super fascinating. And, and it's... As you say, it's such a nice match, uh, and and then you also got so lucky, <laughs> like running into this huge observation straight away. There, there's one um, one version of the blip I would like to play because I think this is also the one that was played at the announcement or uh, at a press conference. Yes, it's a slightly transformed one, and I think that's also interesting to think about what sound processing you know, can give in this context uh, because there's so many tools also to deal with sounds. So let's play this one and you will hear it's, it's the original blip, but a bit uh, different. So it's the whoop. Yeah. So that one, it, it really is. It's, it's, it's the same discovery event, 
but what they've done is just sort of stretch it out a little bit. And I think they shifted it in frequency a little bit just so that you can hear, you know, that you can sort of to, when, when you do that, you end up changing the nature of the signal a little bit. But it clarifies that what you're hearing is this, this sound that is sort of sweeping in frequency. Um, you know, the other one was so short that you basically just hear a quick boop, and that's about it. This one, by stretching it out and by adjusting the frequencies a little bit, it makes it a little bit clearer that you're hearing a process where the frequency is sweeping up, mm -hmm. and it sort of colors it. it. It colors the sound in a way that makes it a little bit closer to uh, the simulated GW1 that you guys played at the beginning of this, uh, of this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, because that, that kind of a signal is there. It's just that it lasts so short, it's hard to pick up. And yeah. so by the post-processing that they did um, in developing the second sound, that is how you can uh, you can pull out this chirping behavior that is present in those things. Mm -hmm. I play all three in a row because now we have the f the full story. So the first one is simulated, simulated. Let me just quickly comment. What goes into that simulation are two black holes that are relatively low mass. So when I made this, I can't remember what the, mm -hmm. what the exact masses were, but they were just a couple times bigger than the sun. And when they're just a couple times bigger than the sun, then they're in the band of a LIGO-type detector for a long time. And it takes, takes longer for them to actually spiral and come together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Now the second one. Whoop. Like a bassy, nice, nice punch there. This one is more like an ultrasound, you know, like reminding yeah, me, yeah. you know, of <laughs> the the sort of when when uh, you observe a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Baby so part TV. of that that. Uh, part of that that ultrasound that you're hearing there, that's actually noise in the detector. Mm -hmm. So um, when they when they put that together, they couldn't filter all the noise out, and so you know the detector always has that's noise. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. is indeed very much like ultrasound when you're uh, when you're you know checking to make sure that the baby is healthy or something like that. You are kind of using something like that. You're using sort of high frequency radi uh, radiation, high frequency sound, mm -hmm. um, and using that to kind of to form an image. And that's basically mm -hmm. exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah, but that's I think that's very interesting. Like all the the images these things conjure up when when you hear them, because with every sound you sort of you think immediately of the physical process that's generated it or what it reminds you of is it like a mechanical sound or an animal sound or a nature sound you know so yeah part of what it is so fun about what is happening right now and this again i'm, I'm make this a little bit personal you know I, i like i said i've been sort of doing this since 1993 and so i kind of think of what i've been doing for the past 23 years as learning to speak this language never really knowing if nature was going to also be speaking this language or whether <laughs> no, I was right. sort of, you know, like making my own constructed language here. Um, and, you know, we are now finding that nature does apparently speak this language. We have, if you think of these antenna as ears, we finally have gotten the, uh, the ears sensitive enough that we're beginning to pick up these signals that nature is saying. And so we're really just at the beginning of the process of asking ourselves, what does nature have to say? And, um, yeah. You know, it's it's with with one fully announced event um, and uh, a new a new run about to commence. Additional data that's being analyzed. 
you know, it, it really does feel like we're at the start of something that's kind of amazing here. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that we can do it in this sort of sonic language just makes it all the more fun. Because, you know, ordinarily, when you go to a talk on astronomy, you go there and you expect to see pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. Well, this is something where the pretty pictures are at best just sort of simulations, but we can play for you actual sounds <laughs> of what it sounds like when these gravitational waves are sort of transformed from uh, ripples in space-time to signals that we pump into our ears. That's really cool. It's a whole new way of thinking about astronomy. And and how is the reception and the physics community? I I could imagine it's sort of a a bit unusual what you're doing. You know, maybe some people find it weird, or is everybody on board with that? Like, what's what's I think everybody's pretty much on board right now. Um, I mean, I I have been using... um, I have been using this, this sort of sonic language to describe the science... Ah, you know, I've been going around and giving talks in which I describe it using this sonic language for, for quite a while. And it was sort of cute at first. People were like, oh, look at that neat <laughs> way of thinking about things. Um, and, you know, when I would do that, this was 10, 12 years ago, they would look at what the sensitivity of LIGO was. They would look at how likely it was there'd be an event. And they'd say, okay, well, oh, yeah. maybe in 15 or 20 years, we'll have Scott come and talk to us about this again. <laughs> and guess what? Now we're at the stage where it turns out everything I was promising them 10, 15 years ago, it's coming true. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the reception has been fantastic. Um, you know, it, it is a new way of thinking about things, uh, but it doesn't take a lot of thought to convince yourself that it's the right way to think about it. And, uh, once you sort of adopt that, boom, you've got you've got your toolkit, and this is how we talk about it. Yeah, cool. Great. So do we have more sounds, Moritz? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it, we can talk about certification in general. I mean... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very different. It's very different. So we know you are super into the gravitational waves. I mean, I would be interested in... Maybe you have an intuition for... Let's... If we look at other data sets, yeah, so um, right. not gravitational waves, like what do you think for which types of data sets sonification will will work well and for which it might not not work as well? Have you thought about this? Uh, not as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my, my career has been based on gravitational right, waves, right. so that's where I've put a lot of it in, into things. But one of the reasons why it works for gravitational waves is that here you have a signal that is... It's coherent in time. You know, mm-hmm. what is going on? At, it's, it's, that's why it's in some sense kind of like a language, right? You know, what, what I say at the beginning of my sentence had better hang together with what I say at the end of my sentence. Right. And in the same way, when I have gravitational waves, because physics sort of gives me a predictable system, what's going on at early times in a system informs what's going to happen at later times in the system. They all kind of hang together in this, mm-hmm. in this coherent fashion. Mm-hmm. And I would think any kind of a field where you sort of develop a time series... Um, in which the data has this kind of coherent evolutionary sort of process, that might be the kind of thing where something like that would be would be interesting to listen to. And, you know, in many cases, it might just be noise-like, but the statistics of the noise, trying to understand exactly what's going on with it, that could be you know something that communicates really interesting information. Mm-hmm. We we see this. I'm going to, have to bring it back to gravitational waves again for just a moment. We see this when we sort of use gravitational wave, or excuse me, when we use sonifications rather as a way to understand uh, the behavior of the noise in our detectors. Ordinarily, so like for instance, when you played uh, that that sound that reminded you of of an ultrasound, that hiss in the background is sort of the normal level of noise in our detectors. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, though, you hear something that kind of goes <laughs> on top of that, and then you kind of go, "Uh, that's not right," and you know you realize something has gone wrong, and you go in and you use that to actually fix your detector. I could imagine a lot of other circumstances where it's 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 that kind of thing. You know, you suddenly hear this sort of high pitched. It's like when you're listening, you know. 
let, let's be blunt. We all do this, right? If you have like a car or something like that, and you start hearing this weird squeaky wiggle <laughs> yeah. when you're driving at a particular speed, you kind of go, huh, okay, that didn't happen before. Does that mean I'm about to drop my transmission on the highway? You know, right, and, right, um, right. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, that kind of diagnosis, listening for something unusual that is, that is unexpected and that is presumably communicating something to you about what's going on. I imagine there's lots of circumstances where mm-hmm. that actually comes up. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because it's it sound can also work in the periphery. Like visuals are yes. often very dominating and then grab your attention and uh sound might work fine for yeah, peripheral perception. So there's one project I can play to you. Um it's called Listen to Wikipedia. I think it's a bit uh, along these lines. <laughs> and um the music you hear is actually based on or the sound collage, yeah, on real-time editing events, and like whenever a page is created, it's a big sound, and when there's a little edit, there's a, a, a small sound. I think the pitch also means something. So everything means something, but you don't have to decipher it. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So the idea is every time there's a particular kind of an event, they associate it with. Yeah. Wow, what the hell oh, is that? Dramatic. <laughs> oh, there's a new <laughs> user. So new users have dramatic uh, sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you can I, I could imagine you let that run, but when there's something strange happening, like a lot of people edit the same page at the you same time, you might it. hear yeah. that and right. then you might want to look that up. Yeah. But it's probably too hard to decipher event by event. Yeah. If, if you are someone who's responsible for some block of pages, and I can imagine just having this in the background, and you suddenly hear a cacophony of all these things going to happen, you sort of go, oh, no, yeah. what, what just happened? Yeah, you know, right. and then you let's go say you're the person the who's in charge display. of like the, uh, yeah. yeah, if you're in charge of the, the Donald Trump Wikipedia page or something <laughs> like that, and then you, you realize, I need oh to look at the God, news, I what just happened? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then we have another great example from the New York Times, and this goes more in the first direction of what you said, actual discrete events over time and, and something that unfolds over time. And it's also real time, which, which also makes a mm. lot of sense if, if the time scale is realistic, right? And it's about sports right. uh, results. Oh, cool. And it was uh, in the 2010 Olympics. Yeah. So, and they visualized or oh, yeah. sonified all the different uh, ski races and bobsled and so on, how close uh, everybody was behind the winner. Right. And so yeah. you could quickly see and hear. Uh, I'll play a few. So, this is women's downhill. So, they were first two, oh. like, dum, dum. These were fairly close, a big break, and then two in very close succession. Hmm. Yeah. Like, and so these last two are actually very close together. Yeah, yeah, practically on top of each other. Yeah. Then there's man's downhill. Super <laughs> close, you know, close. everybody's super yeah. close wow. together. Yeah. Uh, women's skeleton. And you, <laughs> you quickly get a sense of like the texture of this race, right? What's wonderful is this really helps to illustrate the way in which sound just engages such a different part of your brain yeah. than pictures might. Yeah. You know, you really get a visceral sense of how close some of these things finish when you when you do it like that. Yeah. And it traces back to what that that neuroscience graduate student told me twenty some years ago. Uh-huh. You know, this idea that you have this wonderful filter for picking out patterns that your ear, you know, your ear is wonderful at discriminating these things very precisely. And then your brain can pick out these patterns really, really clearly. And this just gives a whole other dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you play me those, you know, the, the, the skeleton results, for example, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And, and I think you pick out different 
different things than the than individuals. I think it's that's that's the interesting thing that it's so complementary. Yeah, right? I was just about to say that anything that is dynamic seems to to fit mm-hmm. sound pretty well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much. Yes, and I think. And you know what? I think that's the key. Yeah, you know, that's dynamics. The key. Yeah, dynamics really yeah. really allows you to develop. A dynamics for all sorts of systems is really about understanding how something is changing and evolving through time. And this, you know, the ear is such a good, I mean, music is all about that, right? And so the ear is so tuned to pick up that kind of thing yeah. uh, that it really imparts this kind of linguistic musical way of thinking about scientific data um, yeah. that, I don't know, I feel like it's, it's underutilized. Yeah, and yeah. it also has a much stronger, my sense is that it has a much stronger emotional impact as well i don't know why i i don't know enough about it but my my guess is that the emotional centers are much more have a much direct connection to sound than mm-hmm. than vision and, uh, and certainly, you know, I was on a flight um, a couple of months ago, and there was a one-week-old baby on the plane. <laughs> yeah. um, and when the baby woke up, it emitted this unique cry yeah, that exactly. only newborns yeah. make. Everyone <laughs> who was, was a parent <laughs> just jumped out of their seat and at that point sort of turned around Especially and, and looked. Especially deaths. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no exactly. exactly. It was just, it <laughs> that dreadful sound. Skips the brain, just goes straight to the spinal cord and it just engages <laughs> yeah, those reflexes. Exactly, exactly. It says, uh-oh, I need to help out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. here's the last example uh, we can listen to. Um, mm-hmm. It's the development of the U.S. home prices. Oh. And uh, let's listen to how NPR uh, solidified that. <laughs> so they actually got an <laughs> opera singer to to uh, interpret the, basically the line chart, and they they also have a version uh, with lyrics, so um, with annotations basically. One second. Can I ask what what time period does this span? Um, let me look it up. I think the last ten years. Um, okay. Yeah, tw- uh, two thousand one to two thousand eleven. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and there's versions for different cities and so on. So it's a whole album, basically. And here's the one with lyrics <laughs> uh, with annotations. The subprime lending industry combined with mortgage-backed securities to create a massive house in the United States. When the bubble popped, home <laughs> prices fell 30%. <laughs> <laughs> so you can you can even add you know text annotations add context so you can it's see it's a whole space it's a whole space i think it's so unexplored i mean mm-hmm. it, it really yeah. is i i worry about that last one though people are going to expect me to start singing yeah. in my colloquia i may need a new line of work exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah you will need a band at some point <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to have to travel with a backing band. Yeah. <laughs> Scott and the gravitational waves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, but I'm so glad this worked out this well. And uh, we were waiting for a long time to do the sonification oh, yeah. episode. Forever. Basically, this card yeah. has been on our stack from day Forever. one. Forever. And yeah. we never found a good way into it. And when I saw... Um, a feature on on the announcement and your work, I was immediately like, okay, that's it. <laughs> this is this is the way. Well, that's fantastic. I'm thrilled I was able to contribute to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this really is. I think it's it's an unexplored co- corner of how one or 
not unexplored, but underexplored corner yeah. of how one can uh, present data. And um, it's so natural for gravitational waves. But I think as those last couple examples you played show, you can do it with a lot of other things too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think you 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 kind of uh, nailed it with the idea that what you're really looking at here is dynamics. It's such a beautiful way to present the dynamical evolution of so many different kinds of things. Um, so, you know, when you're when you're doing data visualizations for people, think about ways that you can. <laughs> maybe you need to get some synthesizers and start thinking about the ways to uh, sonify it Absolutely. as well. <laughs> and uh, dear listeners, if you have any good examples of sonifications, send oh, them yeah, to us. We exactly. might feature them on the show. Excellent. We could yeah. have like one one cool sonification per per show. I wouldn't mind. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So now that this whole world is open, <laughs> let's let's keep exploring it. <laughs> yeah. And Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, Scott. This was amazing. Amazing. And let us know how you like it. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate uh, having a chance to participate in all this. Yeah. And uh, you know, you guys come from a different perspective. And so for me, you know, I I'm a professor. I love talking about my work, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah. seeing your excitement and uh, you know, getting an another example of how this can communicate. Um, this excite the thing that has me so excited and allowing me to convey that to you guys to some extent has been wonderful for Fantastic me. Fantastic work. Thank you. Thanks so much, Scott. That's been amazing. Thank you. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, we have a request. If you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash datastories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast, all in one word. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and look for the link that you find on the bottom in the footer. So one last thing that we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want to us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for us. And that's all for now. See you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. <music> This episode is sponsored by CartoDB. CartoDB is an open, powerful, and intuitive platform for discovering and predicting the key facts underlying the massive location data in our world. With CartoDB, analyzing and designing beautifully insightful maps has never been easier. Check out incredible location intelligence projects and get started for free at cartodb.com gallery. That's C-A-R-T-O-D-B dot com slash gallery.